So I know it is um, Advent, but I don't know about you, but there's still a bit of Thanksgiving going on in our household, certainly with regards to the leftovers. Can I get an amen? Mm. I hope it was a time for you to gather maybe with family, perhaps friends, maybe to have a special meal, something that you don't eat all year long. Um, for me and for our house, I feel like it started several days before Thanksgiving, that first trip to the grocery store. And then on Wednesday morning, I literally woke up, couldn't sleep. So at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, I was chopping apples and boiling eggs for a dish that would be enjoyed the next day. And then Wednesday night, we rearranged some furniture to add a new table. And then on Thursday morning, as the turkey was cooking, I even ironed the napkins. I never ironed napkins, but I did. I did this week because it was all about preparing, remembering, thinking about past Thanksgivings, thinking about who was not there with us that day, who would be there newly with us that day, and being prepared to give thanks and gratitude to God for this season. Well, Luke does something like this, the way he opens the gospel that he writes. He does this, you know, he talks the whole book of Luke is about the principal character, Jesus, right? And it is interesting, though, that Luke doesn't even mention Jesus' name for the first 50, uh, sorry, 30 verses. Like he's in chapter 2, he's not even mentioned in chapter 1. He's going to tell us about Mary's extraordinary pregnancy and about Jesus' amazing birth. But he wants us to prepare our hearts and minds so we can understand the story. And so that's how he begins the gospel. Will you pray with me? Oh, loving God, we pray that you would open up our minds, open up our spirits so that we can hear your word of truth this day. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let's look at how Luke opens up his gospel. In the beginning, he tells the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I didn't appreciate this story for a long time. I just kind of wanted to get on to Jesus' birth. But this is a pretty significant story. These are devout Jews. They have obeyed Moses' laws all their lives, and they are living a very normal and ordinary life. Zechariah is a priest, and as a priest, he belonged to the priestly order or the clan of Abijah, meaning they were all direct descendants of Moses' brother Aaron. And like other priestly clans, this clan rotated through the temple responsibilities, taking their turn in the inner sanctum, in the holy of holies, the place where they believed God actually resided. And they would carry the burdens of the community's sins and offer a sacrifice to God, offer a burning of incense, this fragrant-smelling offering to God as a way to ask forgiveness. Only one man could enter the Holy of Holies, and only one man at a time. And yes, it was a man, just saying. And you would only get chosen one time in your whole lifetime. And most priests didn't get chosen. Now, it wasn't like Zechariah won a popularity or piety contest, no. 
Rather, he and his family members drew straws. They cast lots. It was the first lottery, perhaps, that's ever mentioned in the Bible. They cast lots to see which priest would be chosen to uh, go in that day and offer the incense offering. And if this was Zechariah's day, his chosen day, his lucky day. And there in this sacred space, in the presence of God, the priest would light the incense at the altar as an act of penitence, and they would pour the incense on the hot coals, and the smoke that would rise up would be able to be seen from the people outside. And it symbolized the people's prayers going to God. So the sacrifice would, at least for that time, that short time, it would offer forgiveness for all the people's sins, and it would be a restoration of right relationship with God. It would be a condition of peace, at least for now, there would be peace. The Hebrew word for that is shalom, and that is an inward sense of completeness or wholeness. And it's more, more than simply the absence of war. It is peace like only God can give. It is peace like all is right with the world. It is shalom. So when the priest would come out, the people would gather around waiting for a word, a blessing, a, an assurance of forgiveness that would be from God but delivered by the priest. And this day, it was Zechariah. Now, I don't think I do think it's worth noting that he goes to great pains to say even though it was Zechariah's lucky day, he and Elizabeth were also very devout Jews. They followed the law, they prayed regularly, they were in good standing. But even though they had been faithful, they still had challenges and disappointments in their life. They had done all that had been asked of them, but God did not answer their prayers. They kept everything that they knew to do to be faithful, yet God had left Elizabeth barren. And to her, to them, that was shameful. God had been silent to them, as silent as Elizabeth's womb. No peace for them, only silence. You see, by the time Zechariah is chosen to be the priest that goes into the Holy of Holies that day, he's getting on in years. It just didn't seem like he and Elizabeth would ever parent a child. Now, we don't know what Zechariah was thinking when he went in that day. Perhaps he was hoping, expecting a word from God, assurance of forgiveness. But his own personal prayer was one that maybe he kept saying over and over the same way, year in and year out. And maybe he'd become indifferent or unbelieving about the possibility that God would answer that prayer. Do we, do you ever become complacent about your prayers? Do you ever wonder if God is really listening or even cares? But while Zechariah is in this sacred center, while he is in the Holy of Holies, an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appears to him with announcements, with commands, and with promises. Now, Zechariah, the text says, is fearful. He is scared to death. He, you know, it's like an angel. You don't see that every day, right? And he's talking to you. But his words are peace-bearing when he says, Do not be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. His prayers have finally been answered. 
they have been heard. So the angel continues, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. That's an announcement. You will call his name John. That's a command. And he will be a great joy and will bring much uh, delight in God's eyes. And he'll bring many Israelites back into right relationship with God. Promises. But Zechariah, he's still pretty frightened. And he doesn't quite know what to say. And it's an angel standing there. And so he kind of stammers and he hems and haws. And he finally says, but how can I be sure of this? He wants just a little proof. I don't blame him personally. I don't blame him one bit. I could understand wanting some proof. He is an older gentleman. But who of us could blame him? I mean, how many of us have long ago begun to think that our prayers aren't going to ever be answered? How many of us have ceased to imagine that God even hears them? We pray that our family would grow, that our finances would be better, that our loved one's illness would disappear, that our job would be more meaningful. But how strong is our hope that God will do those things? We pray for peace and justice and love to win, but sometimes it feels like we're just murmuring into the darkness. We hear more of shootings and violence and abuse in this world. And Barbara Brown Taylor says, it seems that we have a failure of imagination, a fear of disappointment, and a habit of hopelessness. And you know what? Zechariah, though, in the midst of that fear and trembling place, he discovers that God does have a word of peace. But not just yet. In God's time. So in that moment, he doesn't know this is coming. He simply says, how can I be sure of this? Now, in my mind's, my mind's eye, I can imagine Gabriel sitting there. Zechariah, how dare you? Now, that's hands on hips if you think angels have hips. I'm not sure, but, you know, in my imagination, they do. And he said, are you kidding me? Here we are right here in the Holy of Holies. You and me, I'm like one of God's powerful angels, and you are doubting me. You're doubting this good news. And then he goes on to say, since you did not believe, since you questioned, you will be unable to speak for a season until the day of your son's birth. Every word I have spoken will come true in time, in God's time. Zechariah, that will be your sign. That will be your proof. So Zechariah leaves the sanctuary with the goal of informing the people what he has just seen and heard and observed. He's prepared to give a word of forgiveness and blessing and peace, but he cannot say a single word. Now, just for a moment, I have to say, there is a little bit of irony for a priest who has no voice. There's just a little humor in that. But how hard it would have been for him to explain to the people what he has just seen. I mean, how do you pantomime an angel? You know, what, right? I want you to go home and practice that, and I want you to tell me about it next week. How would you pantomime that without using any words? But apparently he is successful because just a few verses later he says, the verse says, they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them but remained unable to speak. 
So this morning, I want us to wonder together just a moment about that period of silence for Zechariah. Nine months of silence. Now, at first glance, it seems like punishment because he was disbelieving. But what if? What if we don't think of it as punishment? What if we consider it an invitation? An invitation to be still. An invitation to quiet all those other voices. Because as the story unfolds, we learn that Zechariah uh, changes. There's something within him deeply that changes during this period of silence. What is it? We don't know. But something allowed him to turn from an older gentleman who argued with an angel saying, but I'm old and my wife, she's old, to one who would offer a canticle of praise and salvation and promise just a few verses later at the end of chapter 1. So what did Zechariah think about in those nine months? I wonder, did he hope for, did he pray for world peace? Because, you know, King Herod was breathing down on those Hebrews. He was about to start killing the Hebrew babies. Did he ponder how he could be a better priest? Did he look at Elizabeth with the eyes of love and think, wow, we have been through so much. Joys and disappointments. But now, now our desire is about to come true. It is new possibilities are so evident. There is peace, inner peace, hoped for peace that was being realized. But what else? How did the silence change him? Did it make him listen and observe more? Did it make him depend on others in ways that he's never done so or finds it hard to do? And what about you? How do you handle the silences of life? Do you allow for them in your life? When you do allow for more silence, does it open up more places and spaces for you to pray? to dream and to wonder with God? Does it help sharpen your senses so that you are much more aware of God's presence right in front of you and the beauty that is in your family, your neighbor, the sunrise, the bird, whatever it is, the beauty that is all around us? Does it sharpen those senses? You know, many of you know that this fall, I was on a renewal leave for several weeks, and part of that time, I got to travel. And so I want to tell you a little bit about that, because big part of my goal was that during renewal leave, I would walk in silence. Now, I did not think of it as a punishment. It was a real gift. It was no way a punishment, because it allowed me to be in the presence of mystery and just be with God. It allowed me to experience the beauty that was all around and is all around. And it allowed me to answer some questions I didn't even know I had in my soul. So I want to tell you just about one day in Cinque Terre, Italy. So one morning, Clark said, I'll take care of the luggage and the car, and you go on your spiritual adventure. So I took the train to Rio Maggiore. And they said, well, the, road, the path is closed because of landslides. So I took the train on to Cori Miglia. And the beautiful landscape 
You can see it's all along the coast. So the beautiful landscape was amazing. And the twists and turns were breathtaking. And it gave me new appreciation for this part of the world and how difficult it is to carve out a living in the side of a cliff sometimes. Around noon, I met Clark in the town of Vernassa. We had soup and water, and then I headed back out on the next path to Monterroso. It was so steep and stressful in parts, and I don't have good pictures of this, I think because I was so tired, but my legs were literally shaking, and you had to, if someone was passing you, sometimes the path was so narrow you just could barely get by. But all during that time, for me, I felt the incredible presence of the Spirit, God's Spirit, and I was continually reminded had this strong sense of how much I love you, this community of Hyde Park United Methodist, this church family that we are a part of together. Overwhelmingly, it came up as I began to think of individuals with whom I have walked through some of your most difficult times and some of your happiest, most joyful times, and what a privilege it is for me to do that with you. That was the question I didn't know I was asking, but the answer was so real. In the silence of that journey, for me, there was deep peace. Yes, before the incarnation, there is silence. Before new birth, there is quiet. Friends, those moments, those places, those days of silence can offer us direction, and can offer us focus, and can give us peace. It's true. We don't know exactly what happened that changed Zechariah, but something within him changed. His faith in God was reignited. Before his peace, there was silence. And silence makes room for the fullness of God's active and powerful, peaceful presence to break forth into our lives. The way Luke shares the story, it's about so much more than simply Zechariah having his dream of a child fulfilled and Elizabeth escaping the scorn of the community. Rather, it's a story about God's promises and purposes and the fulfillment of God's word. And even in the midst of this larger story, the needs and hopes and fears of ordinary people like you and me are not left abandoned. They are not forgotten. And that says so much about God and God's lavish and generous and full love for you. Friends, this Advent, I pray that you would hear God's invitation to enter more deeply into times of silence. I pray that you would let go of the need to have the last word. I pray that you would listen more and argue a little less and be open to God's spirit wherever it is leading you, wooing you, inviting you to a deeper peace and a more real love. May it be so. Let us pray. O oh, loving God, we know that it is hard in the busyness of our lives to be silent. But help us focus on you. Help us allow for the silence to be part of your mystery. 
Help us to make room for you in our lives in whatever ways you are leading us. This we pray.